In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have another exciting episode here on The Perspectrum. We'll start off by talking about the historic development, um, passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and how we feel about that. Uh, you might want to turn your volume down for that one. Um, <laughs> and for our second segment, we'll have a uh, an injustice system uh, focused on... Um, mandatory minimum sentences and repeat offender laws and finally we will have a great interview with a uh, retired professor of anatomy and physiology raymond Seelove, uh, to talk about vaccinating kids yeah i'm excited about this episode me too and one reason why i'm excited about this episode is that this is our 100th episode craziness we have done Absolutely this a hundred times yeah we That's... are now old enough to be my dad when i hope he dies <laughs> oh because i want him to make it to 100 <laughs> you can't you can't say that. no you can I say mean, that I, okay it's just weird phrasing <laughs> i know i i i mean i hope he i hope he doesn't i mean i hope he lives forever but what but you know that that's not gonna sure, happen sure. so yeah, you yeah. know if i could choose i would say yeah 100 that's a good age sure 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 makes sense um yeah that's that's pretty crazy i think at this point like yeah we've done like we have put so much time and thought and energy into this show to make it to episode 100 i think that's a huge milestone yeah and i think that in a lot of ways we've evolved and a lot of ways we have grown from this and both of our ideologies have kind of grown and shifted and um and developed yeah this has become this has become so much more than the project that i thought it was going to be yeah like uh you know to be you know 150 or more hours of 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 content produced probably 400 to 500 hours for me like put into this show which means like a thousand man hours or more yeah um and just like yeah the amount of change that that amount of time and thought and energy can can uh, can produce in to your point your your perspective, uh, your political ideas, your amount of the amount of knowledge you have, and even just the way that I like speak and present information. Just having a hundred and fifty hours of practice yeah. talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, what else has had quite a bit of practice hmm. Hmm. you talking about the covid numbers that's true almost as much as i have had uh just talking in general yeah um so at this point in the world we've hit 253 million cases which is up from 249 million last week so that's four million new cases in a week or about five hundred and seventy thousand new cases per day um that's up pretty significantly from the last few weeks when we've averaged about four hundred and thirty thousand cases per day 
Uh, in terms of death, we've hit 5.09 million, which is up from 5.04 million last week. So that's 50,000 new deaths in a week, or about 7,100 deaths per day, uh, which is about the same level that we've seen for the past few weeks. Uh, worldwide vaccinations uh, for, with one dose at least have hit 52.7%, which is up from 51.2% last week. So that's a 1.5% increase, uh, which is still not that great, um, but, but better than the 1% increase we saw from the week before. Uh, in the U.S. at this point, we've hit 47.7 million cases, which is up from 47.2 million a week ago. So that's 500,000 new cases in a week, or about 71,000 new cases per day, uh, which is pretty much the same rate we've seen for the past couple of weeks. Um, we've hit 781,000 deaths in the U.S., which is up from 772,000 last week. So 9,000 new deaths in a week, or about 1,300 deaths per day. And again... That's pretty much the same we saw last week. Yeah. Um, at this point in the U.S., we've hit uh, 59% of the population fully vaccinated, with 68% having at least one dose. And those numbers are up from 58% uh, and 67% last week, so each up just 1% um, from the week before. But hopefully we'll see those vaccination rates tick up even further, because at this point, so like, you know, we as we mentioned last week, um, and you'll hear us talk about way more in uh, the segment with uh, Professor Raymond Seelove. Um, we, uh, you know, now have authorization to vaccinate kids ages 5 to 11. And, you know, in the first week, we vaccinated about 900,000 of those um, with 700,000 more having appointments, which is awesome. Um, but... You know, there's 28 million kids in that age range. So there's a huge opportunity to go after uh, and really increase our vaccination numbers by protecting, you know, the little ones. Yeah. Keep in mind, one of the one of the things that you should remember about the vaccination numbers that Michael reads every week mm -hmm. is he's talking about the percentage of the total population, not the yeah. percentage of the eligible population, mm -hmm. meaning that that percentage has not included kids during the entire time that, that we've, we've discussed it. So hopefully there will be a significant uptick as, as, as parents start recognizing that the risk of getting COVID outweighs the risk of getting the vaccine. And hopefully that will lead more and more parents to get their kids vaccinated, ticking that number up more and more uh, to hopefully reach that, you know, that beautiful herd immunity that we've been trying to get. Yeah. Yeah. And to Nathan's point, like the reason that we discuss percent of total population instead of percent of eligible population is because the disease does not care if you're eligible for the vaccine or yeah. not. <laughs> that herd immunity is not going to be different. Uh, for eligible or ineligible populations. So that's what we're going for. Yeah. But you know what is different? Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is it? Infrastructure. Infrastructure. <laughs> because Bam. Because we passed an infrastructure we, bill. We did. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> on, <laughs> on November 6th, uh, enough progressives caved. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That the House passed um, 
the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, also called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and Biden is expected to sign it into law on Monday. Um, the vote pretty much fell along party lines, uh, with actually 13 Republicans joining the 215 Democrats in support of the legislation, uh, with six progressive Democrats um, voting against it. So that was Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush, uh, AOC, Ilan Omar, uh, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. Yeah. Um, all voted against it, and then, you know, ultimately six is not enough to keep that from passing, and so it's headed to Biden's desk. So you know that episode title? I believe it was it was either two episodes ago, three episodes ago. Uh, the episode title, Progressives Hold the Line. Never mind. It's no longer true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so as a as a refresher, you know, this infrastructure bill is the bipartisan, more traditional infrastructure focused bill that was tied since March or whatever to the Build Back Better plan or the human infrastructure bill. And this was a, a strategic move to tie the two bills together to cobble enough Democrat so Democratic support of the Build Back Better agenda uh, to get both passed, right? And so this has been, and this has been, you know, a focus of the more moderate Democrats in recent months, which is not surprising. They have been trying to, convince us and their colleagues that these bills should actually not be tied together at all and that you know regardless of what happens with the build back better agenda we should pass this infrastructure bill yeah and you know what caused most of the congressional progressive caucus to end up folding and voting for the legislation they got a, a pinky promise that <laughs> Of course, there's going to be a vote on the Build Back Better plan. I mean, you know, first we want to send them to the Congressional Budget Office and, and see if it uh, see if it ends up costing as much as they say it costs. But then after that, there's definitely going to be a vote. All right. Yeah. And I definitely agree to vote for it unless, of course, you know, the Congressional Budget Office says that it's too much. Now, that's literally what they yeah, got. That is that's that literally was, what they got. That was the assurances that progressives got, which caused them to fold and vote for it. And I would and just like to point out, I'd just like to remind you, I'm sorry, Michael. I, I just like to remind you the current bill is $1.75 trillion, which is a compromise, you know, in quote, in air quotes of the $3.5 trillion, which was a compromise of the $6 trillion that Bernie Sanders had initially asked for. So this is a compromise of a compromise of a compromise. And it's it's not even guaranteed to pass. That's my big thing. <laughs> that is my whole thing. They got this assurance, you know, this like this statement from like five moderate House Democrats. We didn't need them. Like we didn't need like, like they were not going to stop this process. Like, okay, we, we, we would want them to vote for it, obviously. They would not have killed this bill in the House. Yeah. They basically got someone who didn't have the power to give them anything that they needed to say, yep, I'll give you something. 
you know, or yeah, yep, I'll, I'll, I'll do the thing that I've been planning to do all along. Is that enough for you to vote for this bill? It was an, it was nothing because as we've reiterated again and again and again on the show, the real roadblock to this is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema in the Senate. Darren Chambers. And there are already <laughs> reports that Joe Manchin is considering delaying the passage of the Build Back Better plan until 2022. Yeah. Citing concerns of inflation. Yeah. There's already reports of that. Yeah. All right. At this point, it's it's internal reports. So, you know, he hasn't directly come out and say it, said it. Mm-hmm. But that's what the reports are. That's what internal yeah. reports are currently saying. There was an Axios report that uh, report that discussed that. So he might be delaying it. Yeah. Anyway, and fuck it, he might yeah. even sink it. Anyway, and again, this is the watered down version of the watered yeah. down version of the bill. So yeah. So just to distill this down, in exchange for giving up all of their leverage. The progressives that voted for this bill received a commitment from people from whom that they they did not need to receive a commitment that they would vote to support the bill should it come out, you know, in line with expected costs from the Congressional Budget Office. And they would support it by November 15th, right? So they got something that they didn't need with a contingency, you know, a contingent component. The CBO has said, well, we we can't commit to any kind of timeline for when we'll have final results of the size of the impact of this bill. So their out has basically, are, that, that pin has already been pulled by the CBO, right? And what they actually need, which is a commitment from Cinema and Manchin in the Senate to support the bill, they do not have, and they have given up all their leverage. And now Manchin is seeding, you know, is sowing the seeds of a future refusal to support the bill based on inflation because inflation is something that's really scary right now. It hit like 6.2% in October. That's astronomically high. And that's a very scary thing. And so in the spirit of Halloween, which is recently passed, uh, he wants to spook everyone. The problem is this has nothing to do with inflation. This has nothing to do with the short-term inflation spike that is related to COVID and related to the, you know, the supply chain problems that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Even if you think that this inflation is caused by the injection of money into the economy, which there's like hearty disagreement about, um, this entire bill over 10 years is less than one of those infusions into the economy. The inflation impact, even if those were literally just dollars we're giving out, would be would be almost nothing. And they're not just dollars we're giving out. These are like investments we're making, which is like the other side of the ledger, right? Inflation is dollars relative to GDP. Well, we're investing in GDP. <laughs> you know, we're investing in things that drive value in the economy. And multiple provisions of this bill would actually reduce inflation. Yeah. So it is a total red herring and it's one that he's going to fucking get away with. And at this point, the Democrats have no, nothing left to trade. Yeah. 
You got rid of at, all of your yeah. fucking leverage. Yeah. That being said, as we've talked about on the show, if we could only have one, I think we land on the conclusion that we would take one, right? Like this infrastructure bill is has a lot of good things that are going to be really important. They're very basic, right? They're things like drinking water that's clean. Hmm. Broadband, which is awesome, but like, you know, how about we throw on free community college? You know, it's a lot of like good, strong things that are going to just bring the United States up to, you know, like passable as a modern like industrial power. What would bring us into the 21st century is the Build Back Better plan, and we just gave away all our leverage. I think they should have killed it. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that. I think that they should have fucking killed it. This was not the agreement, all right? And if they had killed it, then, again, that is them backing up Biden's agenda because that was the agreement. These bills go together, all right? Mm -hmm. That was the agreement. So not only did they give up their leverage for having a better bill, you know, which was already, you know, which was already kind of a, uh, which was already kind of a sticking point. They gave up their leverage for having any bill whatsoever. Yeah. So look, I I, I do want to be clear. I'm not saying that all of the members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus are now enemies. I do not (laughs) believe that. I think that most of them are are good people that have the right ideas and we need more mm-hmm. of them in Congress. You know, there's a lot of people that I have respect for that voted for this bill. Uh, Katie Porter, Ro Khanna, um, Pramila Jayapal. I have so much respect for them. But this was monumentally stupid. All right. This was completely stupid. And you went back on what you said you would do. All right. I understand that you th- might have thought that not going back, that, 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 that going back on it was your only way to get something. But honestly, all this taught you, all this, this taught everybody was that progressives are not going to hold the line. All right. Mm-hmm. That all you need to do is wait them out and eventually they'll give in. Yeah. All right. So it's okay to pass inferior bills that are really not going to do much. It's okay to walk all over progressives because they're just going to fold. All right. That is why they should have killed the bill because the next time something like this happens, they will know these people aren't bluffing, but now they like they called your bluff and you you know, you just, you lost, you lost. So credit to the five Democrats or rather the, the six Democrats that actually stuck to it. Credit to uh, Jamal Bowman, credit to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, credit to Ayanna Presley, credit to Rashida Tlaib, credit to Ilhan Omar, credit to Cori Bush. As for the rest of y'all, you fucked this up. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? 
Well, Nathan, I'm so glad you asked. The real reason we do Tips for Good every week is because I want to dance with somebody. <laughs> because I want to feel the hit with somebody. <laughs> That's the real reason uh, that we do Tips for Good. So out of curiosity, would mm-hmm. this theoretical somebody mm-hmm. love you? Um, yes. Okay. You're right. That's a good precondition. They okay. should love me. They should And then love I want to dance with them yeah. and feel the heat. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. And that's tips for good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think love makes the world a better place. Yeah. Wow. You know? We're really, it's a crossover. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now that I think about it, actually, there's probably even, even better reason than dancing, feeling the heat and loving. Uh, and that is to make the world a little bit of a better place. Yeah. So, Nathan, what is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is a tip that we've actually given iterations of in the past. And that is that when it comes to talking to people that are skeptical about the vaccine or scared of the vaccine, don't call them an idiot. (laughs) No matter how tempting it might be. No matter how angry you might be, there, you, you really should not yeah. personally insult them. Because or, this, or even, yeah, in any way, even no, not even imply it. Not even you should even go so far as to take them seriously. So there is there are some people that just have you know th- that are just completely full of shit. Like if a person is saying if I take this vaccine, it's going to turn me into a lizard or some shit. Like that person's a fucking idiot. Like you can call them an idiot. That's fine. But for someone who's just like, hey, I don't know about the research. I've been hearing things that scare me. Now, mind you, some of those things that scare them might be from people that don't know what they're talking about. But that doesn't mean that that fear that they have is not an actual fear. That it doesn't come from just being an ignoramus, you know? Mm. So what I would say is listen to the fears and address them specifically. It still might not work, but we've been trying so hard to end this pandemic. And the only way that this pandemic ends is with, is with vaccinations. So if your arguments for why people should get the vaccine aren't working, change your arguments. And that's tips for good. So for our second segment, we are doing another installment of the Injustice System. Um, And as a reminder, the Injustice System is a series of segments um, that we, you know, maintain and put together on this show where we do small case studies. We do little, uh, we do, you know, relatively in-depth reviews of specific components of our criminal justice system that don't work to drive, you know, equal justice and due process. Um, And the one we're talking about today uh, is specifically mandatory minimums. Um, And so mandatory minimums are a component of sentencing laws, which require judges to give all offenders convicted of a certain crime the same or at least a minimum amount of 
time in prison. Um, regardless of outside circumstances, you know, the judge has no discretion in terms of how much, how little time they would be able to, uh, you know, uh, assign to the conviction of a particular crime. Yeah. And one of the biggest issues with this is that it's often not based on whether or not it was violent. Mm-hmm. Like, like especially if we're talking about yeah. drug crimes, it's not based on whether or not it was violent. It's not even based on your role in the specific crime. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it's based on how much drugs were involved. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Which is a terrible way of determining how much of a threat to society a person is. Yeah. So before we really get into this, let's steel man for a bit. All right. Let's try to steel man the shit out of this argument. Sure. And there are some extremely tempting arguments for mandatory minimum sentencing laws. Yeah. All right. Now, not for, I would say not so much for drugs. Yeah. But let's talk about something that most of us as progressives can agree is a crime that is very frequently not punished enough. And that is rape. Rape and sexual assault. And the most stark example that most people can think about is the infamous case of Brock Turner. Mm -hmm. Where he was sentenced... To what was it? Three months? Something like that. Something like ridiculously short. Three months in prison. For the conviction of a violent... Of a violent rape. Yeah. Right? And it was the judge that decided, yeah, this is... Uh, you know, this is this is what we're going with. Yeah. All right? Because I don't want to ruin this guy's future, despite the fact that he's a fucking rapist. Yep. All right? Yep. So, it is very tempting to want there to be a mandatory minimum sentencing law so that judges who have implicit biases that might cause them to think, well, this is a white dude who is affluent. I don't want to ruin his future prospects to potentially give that person a significantly lighter sentence than they might have given a black person who committed the same crime. Yeah. Yeah, another tempting, you know, equality type argument is like and and one from that's kind of from justice if you if you think of our system as a retributivist system where you're trying to like rebalance the scales of justice a crime imposes you know some level of harm on society and therefore there should be a minimum amount of recompense required to rebalance the harm that that's been done right like you did the crime why should a judge, you know, for some extraneous circumstance, reduce your sentence to be below what be would be required to like to, you know, rebalance what your the kind of debt you owe to society? Yeah. Absolutely. And in fact, after the Brock Turner case, California passed a new string of mandatory minimum sentencing laws uh specifically for um, for sexual assault. And a lot of liberals, a lot of progressives even, cheered it on. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I completely get why you would cheer that on. All right? 
I think Brock Turner should have gotten five fucking years for what he did. At least. At least. <laughs> like, at least. You know? I think even even that might be, like, yeah. might be I mean, kind. Yeah, like, maximum sentence allowed for that crime. Yeah. He was convicted of it. Yeah. You know? So, but here's the problem with that. So, as it stands... In practice, now, and this is kind of ironic because the original intention behind the idea of mandatory minimum sentencing laws was to basically make justice blind, all right? Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what happened. We are going to make this the minimum amount that you can be sentenced for a particular crime, for a particular charge. Doesn't matter what you did. Or, or rather, it doesn't matter who you are. It just mm. matters that you were charged with this specific crime. And theoretically, you might look at that and say, well, that must solve racism then. <laughs> but here's the issue. It might shift some of the implicit bias or some of the effects of implicit bias away from the judge, but it puts it right back onto the prosecutors. Yes. Basically what happens is that prosecutors have more power under mandatory minimum sentencing laws because they can decide to charge a person with a specific charge that comes with a mandatory minimum sentence, which can sometimes come with the issue of, number one, forcing plea deals. Because mm -hmm. you know if, if you can't afford a lawyer, whether you did a crime or not, and we, we've talked about the idea of plea deals before mm -hmm. um if if you can't afford a lawyer and you're being convicted of a and you're being charged with a crime that you didn't commit and the choice is you go to court and risk 20 years in prison or you do a plea deal yeah and maybe you get three years in prison you're gonna take the three years in prison yeah totally and 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 it might yeah it, it definitely incentivizes plea deals. And you can even, as a prosecutor, you have a lot of discretion over what you charge a person with, yeah. right? You get There are lots of different shades of a crime, and only some of those shades have mandatory minimums applied. So that gives you even more power to say, hey, you know, cop to this lesser crime, or I'm going to throw a mandatory minimum crime on the docket. And if you could get convicted of that you know it's not just more time it's it's there's no escape there's no chance of leniency for that for that bigger crime and to your point nathan like this is a huge compromise of the very structure of our criminal uh like like legal system in the courts, our system for, for determining guilt in the courts, right? Like the way it's set up is adversarial. There is a prosecutor, right? Who is supposed to be the zealous advocate for the conviction of the accused. There is the defendant the you know, the, the, you know, the defense lawyer who's meant to be a zealous advocate for the acquittal of the accused, right? Those sides are meant to pull against each other with equal power such that the um, truth and justice can be observed. And the judge 
is the most is one of the more critical roles here because he is re- he is the referee of that competition between the two adversarial sides and he his judgment allows for, you know for the the for the introduction of fairness where there are unfair components at play something like not being able to receive a good lawyer a good zealous defense something like um you know, being an upstanding member of your community that happens to be caught with a certain amount of, you know, marijuana, something like that. And this takes that judgment, that critical role out of the hands of the judge, puts it on as a tool in the tool belt of the prosecutor, giving them way more power. It totally corrupts that balanced system, as many other things do, but it's just one more thing that gives so much more power to the prosecutors and it takes it right from the hands of the judge. Yeah. And not only all of that, and this, this gets back to the point of why mandatory minimum sentencing laws should not exist even for sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And that is the fact that based on everything we, that we know about current mandatory minimum sentencing laws, and I'm sure that this is going to shock nobody, <laughs> It disproportionately affects people of color. In fact, if you are, if you are black, you are 65% more likely, 65% more likely for a prosecutor to bring a mandatory minimum sentencing charge for the same crime against you. 65%. All right. So if that has applied to literally every type of mandatory minimum sentencing law that's ever been created, that's ever been on the books, it's obviously going to there's no reason to suggest that it's not going to also apply to mandatory minimum sentencing laws for sexual assault. Yep. So as it stands, mandatory minimum sentencing laws have not had even close to their intended impacts. No. All right? Yeah. They have not reduced crime. In fact, there was a there's a case study of specifically mandatory minimum sentencing laws uh, from the, uh, the, the 1980s to the 1990s in New York, Michigan, and Florida. So what this study found was that basically in New York in North, in in New York by the by the end of the late 1990s 30% of all prisoners who were incarcerated were incarcerated for drug crimes and the state's murder rate rate increased by one third so they didn't mm. prevent violent crime but they had more people locked up for nonviolent crime. Yeah. In Michigan, crime and drug use did not drop. 86% of those convicted under mandatory life sentence laws were first-time prisoners. Hmm. And 70% of them were poor. Yeah. In Florida, there is a 50% spike in crime by 1990, this was right after the mandatory minimum sentencing laws 
were, were, were put in place in Florida. And 35% of the prison population was comprised of drug offenders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in some cases, crime is increasing after these laws are passed. The people that are being filled, the, the people that the prisons are being filled with are not violent offenders, do not yeah. become violent offenders. And there has been some efforts to try to reduce mandatory minimums. And in fact, uh, current the, the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, has specifically said that it is the official it is the official view of the Biden administration to eliminate mandatory minimum sentencing laws. However, that's what he's saying. However, they're not they're they're not refraining from pursuing mandatory minimums on a federal level. Hmm. In fact, he's actually reinstated a uh, a holder policy. Eric Holder was the former attorney general under Barack Obama. He had reinstated a policy where he basically he base that basically goes that if two crimes have the same uh, a statutory maximum and the same guideline range, but only one of them contains a mandatory minimum penalty. The one with the mandatory minimum minimum penalty is the one that you're going to be bringing people on charges of. Mm-hmm. So it's the official at this point right now in the Biden administration. It's the official stance to say, we believe that there shouldn't be mandatory minimum sentencing laws. But until they're repealed, we're going to use them. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't have to. They do not have to. Yeah. It's really remarkable. As we know, like the war on drugs is like the colossal, one of the, the one of the colossal uh, failures of the modern era from a criminal justice perspective. And this is more often than not just another instance of that, you know, failure taken to the extreme you know so many of these mandatory uh you know minimum um you know incarcerations are for drug offenses often nonviolent. and what you're doing is just taking the ability of the judge off the table to say you know what like this punishment doesn't fit the crime you're you're, you're taking that ability for the judge to to assess the potential harm of a, you know, of an accused or, or convicted person to society to be low. It's just, it's just compound. It's adding insult to injury. It's like, we already failed at the war on drugs, but let's make sure that we incarcerate as many people for as long as possible under it. One, one, in one of these, which I find like a form of mandatory minimum, which I find the most heinous that we we definitely have to talk about, are repeat offender or three strikes laws. Mm, yes. So these are uh, intended to prevent future crime. They're one of they're kind of one of the the few examples of like a law that adjusts sentencing 
to account for, you know, past behavior with the intent of trying to get, you know, future crime to stop. It's not just deterrent. It's actually like, let's get people that are more likely to do crime in the future off the streets. The problem is it doesn't work. So, so what it does is if you have a, um, if you have two like felony charges, right? Uh, you know, two felony convictions. If you get a third one, um, in most cases, you are sentenced to, it like it severely increases your sentencing time, normally to something like 40 or 20 to life. And so, so just to add a little nuance to that, you know, those first two convictions, in most cases, have to be strikeable offenses. So there's like a specific group of offenses that are strikeable. It includes many nonviolent offenses. So it's not like it's just for people that are serial, you know, assaulters or something like that. But the third strike can be any felony. And for that third strike, there is the minimum imprisonment time required of 25 years. So even if you're like doing, you know, if, even if it's good behavior, parole, like you, you are a model prisoner, one who by all other standards, should be released out into society, your minimum imprisonment time is 25 years once you hit that third strike. But the thing is, like, again, like, we have to emphasize, this is not just, like, hardened criminals. This is not, like, necessarily people who are out there harming their communities and harming other people. Like, that third strike... The, the first two can be relatively minor and the third one can be just as minor. Like, like uh, Milena Blake, a staff attorney for the Street Three Strikes Project at Stanford University Law School, described some of the third strikes that land people in prison for 25 to 40 to life, right? Things like stealing three bottles of shampoo, stealing a beer stein, taking a bike from an open garage, Possession of meth residue, stealing a piece of pizza, walking out of a Costco with, with a stolen bottle of liquor. Things that like are small. <laughs> but the fact is that once you have a three strikes law in place, which imposes a minimum sentence of 25 years with, with normal, you know, you know, sentencing, you know, a minimum imprisonment time of 25 years with sentencing of like, 40 to life, um, all of a sudden you just make, you just imprison someone forever for doing nothing. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's really mind blowing to me how far off the rails this is. Think about, think about this case. You could, you could steal $500 worth or $1,500 worth of stuff, right? And then the state will put you in prison at a cost of $500,000 for the rest of your life. If you're unlucky enough to have stolen $500 worth of stuff three times, right? Same amount of stuff, 1,500 bucks. Costs the state $500,000 to keep you in prison, but now you go to prison for the rest of your life. And like another example, you could steal those first first two $500 when you're, um, you know, like a little, like a teenager. 
and then commit some, you know, felony later on, it could be small, right? It could be like, you fuck up on your taxes or something. Bam. You haven't done a crime. You haven't done like an intentional, uh, like, property crime in most of your life. And bam, you're in prison for life. It's crazy. And one of the things that um, that is also important to note, like, like let's let's really quick discuss what I think is one of the most stark effects of this whole uh, this whole thing. So the effect that this has had on the black community. Mm. So after the passage of mandatory minimum sentencing laws, um. For black men, 18 years or older, one in 15 is incarcerated, are incarcerated. Between the ages of 20 and 34, one in nine. All right. So from 1970 to uh, 1986, so when a lot of these laws were being put in place, the proportion of of black people in prison increased by 25%. Hmm. Now you might say, well, isn't it because like if more black people are going to prison, doesn't that mean that more black people are committing crimes? No. In fact, during that same time period, the proportion of blacks arrested for violent crimes dropped by 20%. Mm -hmm. So the people that were actually going into prison, the black people that were going to prison, were not violent criminals. Or, I mean, yeah. most of them were not. All right? Violent crime decreased by 20%. Yeah. So, it's... More of them were being arrested. Less of them were committing crimes. Yeah. That's the thing... That's the crazy thing about including... Even if you think mandatory minimums and, like, three-strike laws are a good idea for violent crime, which, as we've discussed... They're not. But even if you concede at that point, the fact that you're including nonviolent crimes, which are the vast majority of crimes, means that you're just going to sweep up tons and tons of people into the prison system for life. Like, the top crimes in the U.S., larceny, theft, and burglary. Not Nonviolent crimes. Those are property crimes. Yeah. And so, yet, like, drug offenses <laughs> are what are landing people in prison the most. And, like, these laws include all of these nonviolent crimes. And, like, as a society, we are just not balancing, like, interests here. We are just, we are just saying crime evil. Yeah. Like, any any crime is a terrible crime and we're going to put you in like the fact that you can have like a $1500 negative impact from your crimes and then we will say you know what life in prison yeah so then one question you might be asking is how do we fix this all right is there a solution and actually there's some pretty decent ideas for solutions so one of the suggestions is instead of mandatory minimums, expert commissions, meaning mm. that 
you have expert commissions that look at specific cases and make recommendations. All right. And then the judge chooses, uh, can, can choose based on that recommendation. They have no obligation to choose based on that recommendation, but it at least allows a commission to look at all, like all possible circumstances. All right. So they can give a, a sentence range for a crime that depends on their criminal record, the seriousness of the crime, the flexibility to, to sentence inside or, or above or below the average and taking into account other facts that might've been involved. All right. Meaning was this the, the ringleader? Was this just someone who like happened to be like happened by and was in the wrong place at the wrong time um, and happened to do something that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have, but like there are circumstances that should be taken into account. Many states actually have at this point um, sentencing guidelines in addition to mandatory minimums. All right. And for some of them, the guidelines don't have to be mandatory, hmm. which means it can just be advisory. So something like this could give judges an actual ability if this were implemented more on a nationwide basis. It would actually give judges the ability to not only have more perspective based on each criminal's individual situation, each person's individual situation, but also give suggestions based on that, that they have no obligation to follow. Hmm. It's not a perfect system, but it's a hell of a lot better than we got right now. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Michael, I could not be more happy to introduce <laughs> this week's asshat, Jimmy Dore. Ooh, Jimmy Dore, come on again. down. Back too soon. Again. <laughs> oh, it's never too soon to, to talk about how much of an asshat Jimmy Dore is. <laughs> So what did Jimmy Dore do this time? Jimmy, so, that's hard to say. What did Jimmy Dore do this time? <laughs> <laughs> so so Jimmy Dore, who uh, is actually more and more leftist commentators are realizing that he is full of shit. Mm. Um, recently, he has been basically going all out in anti-vax bullshit. Hmm. And that's enough to already make me think, fuck this guy. Like... As somebody who has an audience, who has a following, he is being irresponsible. Mm -hmm. But recently, he took that irresponsibility to a whole new level to the point where it's not just irresponsible, it's fucking malicious. So he was doing a segment in which he was reading, uh, he, he, was, he was talking about a Fortune article that was discussing... Uh, the growing rates of COVID in Singapore, which mm -hmm. is, is a, is a country that has a pretty high vaccination rate. So he puts up, he puts up the text of this fortune article on screen and I, I'm going to read it to you and you'll, you'll understand why I'm reading it to you directly right now uh, in, in just a little bit, but I'm going to read it to you. This is what he put up on, on the screen. And again, this is on screen. Somebody um, from his show put this on the screen. So he, it says, quote, but Singapore's growing caseload has raised alarms nonetheless because of the spread at which cases have climbed despite 
policies including stay-at-home orders, intensive testing, and contact tracing, and a ban on foreign visitors. So reading that, immediately what it sounds like is being said is that COVID restrictions in Singapore are just not working. Yeah. Right? That's what... Which is... That is a big claim. That is an quite important a big claim. One. Here's the issue. That's not what the article says. All right? This is what the actual article says. It says, quote, But Singapore's growing problem caseload has raised alarm, nonetheless, because of the spread at which cases have climbed... Throughout July and August, cases in Singapore ticked up to over 100 per day after nearly a year of almost no infections due to the city's previous zero-tolerance policy. That policy included stay-at-home orders, intensive testing, and contact tracing, and a ban on foreign visitors. (laughs) He cut out the part, he cut out the part of the article that says that... There were no infections because of the zero tolerance policy. He included the word despite instead of that. And he changed policy to policies and included to include ding, making it sound like the policies were still in place. He doctored the article to make it seem like the, uh, the, the zero tolerance policies, the COVID restrictions were not working. Weren't working. To fit he his doctored narrative. the article, all right? He doctored it. And again, you, you can't just say that that he misread it or that he skimmed it and, you know, accidentally got the wrong information because he put the wording of the article on his screen, on screen. Mm. And huge credit to YouTuber Sean for, for finding this, for, for originally, like, realizing this. Um, he did a whole video, and actually, he actually did an almost an hour-long video on his YouTube channel, um, basically breaking down Jimmy Dore's bullshit anti-vax, uh, like, anti-vax propaganda. Mm-hmm. And this he's the one that discovered this. This is unforgivable, all right? The, it, it, the way I see it, the worst thing that a person who fancies themselves a political commentator can do is to purposely falsify information. All right. And that's what he did. I used to not, I used to not be sure if Jimmy Dore was just a fucking idiot or, a, or an egotistical maniac uh, or, or just like a fucking idiot, egotistical maniac, but someone who actually does believe what he says. Mm-hmm. So like still an honest actor, just somebody who's unbelievably stupid and, caught up in the fact that he uh, caught up in his own narcissism. This shows, this shows me, no, it's not just, he's an idiot. He is a shyster. He is a malicious lying shyster who knows exactly what he's doing. And he can never be trusted again. All right. The moment a person that you, a person who fancies himself a political commentator starts purposely doctoring information never listen to a single word they say, all right? They have shown you that they are not trustworthy. If Michael and I ever did that shit, you should immediately stop listening to us. You should never listen to another episode again, all right? If we ever did that, all right? Some people make mistakes. They accidentally misinterpret an article and say something that's not true. And, you know, to to the extent that uh, 
I, I mean, I, I don't think you and I have done that very often, but in mm. the few instances in which we might have said things that were, you know, slightly off. Misleading we, accidentally or We've something. corrected ourselves. Yeah, and that's our responsibility to do. That is our responsibility. But if we had ever doctored an article with the intention, this isn't misinformation, this is disinformation. Yeah. All right? If we ever did that shit, stop following us. All right? Mm. We have lost your trust. So a deep and hearty congratulations <laughs> to Jimmy Dore for being our Asshat of, the, of week. the Week. All right. Up next, we have the triumphant return of former professor of anatomy and phys- physiology, or I guess I should say retired uh, professor of anatomy and physiology, Raymond Seelove. Uh, Dad, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you, son. I appreciate being back. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the vaccine for children. So recently, the uh, Center for Disease Control and the FDA approved the use of, uh, I believe it was, it was specifically the Pfizer vaccine. The Pfizer BioNTech. Yeah, for for children from five to 11. So my first question is, why did it take longer to approve the vaccine for children? Well, so uh, there are a number of things that went into that. Um, One is that from the beginning, the, the pandemic was not as dangerous for children as it was for older people. Um, and so with, um, in terms of, um, the urgency, it was far more urgent to get the testing done to, to, um, to approve it for older people and then for in between and, and children last, um, Children last was really because, um, and whenever you are trying to decide if a vaccine is a good idea to use, there are two parts of it. Part of it is, you know, does it work? But part of it is weighing the risk of the vaccine itself to the risk of the disease that the vaccine is protecting you from. So the more dangerous a disease is, the more danger you can put up with in the vaccine that prevents it. Hmm. Um, Because children were not in as much danger, it was really hard to justify um, testing it on children until after there had been a lot of testing on older people that could give you some confidence that when you tested it on the children, you wouldn't be surprised and and disappointed by um, by terrible accidents, terrible effects. You know, this is is one of the fundamental things with, um, with making a decision about a vaccine. you're, if you decide not to get a vaccine, 
um, that isn't really the neutral position, hmm. right? It's not, I will take the risk of a vaccine or not take the risk of a vaccine. It's, I will take the risk of a vaccine or I will take the risk of getting COVID. Because the, the opportunity to just not get COVID is gone. Um, it might've been possible uh, early in the pandemic if things had been done differently to, um, uh, to avoid it becoming worldwide and virtually everybody in the world getting it, but it's no longer possible. Everybody's gonna get it. And so the question then becomes, um, what is the relative risk of the vaccine versus the, hmm. the disease? Um, now, having said that, um, the, the disease might have been less dangerous for children, but it's still plenty dangerous. Yeah. Um, children do get it. Children do get long COVID. Children die from it. Children that don't die from it sometimes have very serious long-term side effects. Um, it's, uh, it, it's pretty bad, but the, um, the number of children that get bad enough to need hospitalization, for example, is lower than it is for older people. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the main reason for the delay. It's, it's a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. So you mentioned that when making the decision about giving a child a vaccine, it's all about risk assessment. So the risk of getting the disease versus the risk of getting the vaccine. In the interest of full transparency, based on what we know about the vaccine and how it affects children, what are some of those risks? Well, so um, there is, of course, with any vaccine, the risk of um, a, an allergic reaction. Yeah. Um, and some of the allergic reactions that adults have had have been kind of severe. That's not very common, um, but it has been a problem. And there are people who, for example, were not able to get their second shot because their initial one uh, caused such a strong reaction. As far as vaccines go, the, um, the allergic response uh, has been less than usual. Hmm. It's still there. It happens to some people. And it's one of the reasons why the protocol involves uh, after the shot, people having to hang around for 15 hmm. minutes, find out what's going to happen. Because if you're going to have a, a really strong uh, anaphylactic reaction, it'll be evident by then. And you need to be around um, a facility where they are prepared to uh, do an emergency treatment like um, epinephrine shots to treat that kind of reaction. So that's, that's one. There's also um, been some um, risk of myocarditis. Myocarditis is a, uh, it's kind of a serious um, heart problem with the heart muscle. And it is, um, 
it's it's pretty bad. Um, if COVID nineteen were not around, it wouldn't be worth risking giving this vaccine to children because some of them are going to get this myocarditis from it. Not very many, although one of the things that's hard to know right now is exactly how many will get it. Hmm. Um, the, uh, the total amount of data right now is, it, it's enough that the CDC panel, when they were discussing it, were thoroughly convinced that it needed to be approved, but they were not convinced enough to endorse um, uh, any kind of vaccine requirements in children hmm. because, you know, there is that possibility um, that some of these kids are going to get myocarditis from. And how serious now, is that? Um, it's, it can be debilitating. It can be deadly. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, but here's the other thing that people have to think of when they think about myocarditis. The risk of myocarditis from getting COVID-19 is much, much higher for ah, children interesting. than the risk of getting myocarditis from the vaccine. Hmm. Um, so, but, but it is, you know, you have to acknowledge, yes, there is a risk and the exact nature of that risk is still uh, a little hard to pin down. Yeah. It's very clear that that risk is lower than the risk of getting COVID. And COVID is so prevalent that, you know, um, the responsible choice would be to get that vaccine for the children. But but here's the thing, it probably isn't necessary for everybody to get their children vaccinated right away. Hmm. It's okay. probably okay if it takes a while. If the people who are the most anxious to get that protection have it available and can get it right away. And for parents who have understandable concerns about side effects, to hold off a little while. You know, as, as children in the general population start getting this vaccine, the data will come rolling in just like it did before. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was in that first wave of people in the general public getting the uh, vaccine uh, for adults. And, um, it was the results from people like me that were in that early wave that allowed the data to be collected that made it really clear that it really was going to be a good idea for everybody, all the adults to get it. And, you know, it might have been nice if that had happened sooner with younger children. Uh, but it makes sense to be cautious. And the CDC has been very cautious. Um, and the, the approval as it stands right now um, 
where they're endorsing it but not encouraging mandates for children to get vaccines. You know, it, it makes sense in terms of the data to have mandates for adults to get the vaccines. The mandates that have been imposed on some industries, some businesses, those are justifiable at this point. But it's not quite there yet with children. Hmm. And I, I really do think it will be there fairly quickly. Does the, does the risk for uh, myocarditis exist with adults getting the vaccine as well? It does. Um, it's, uh, but again, with adults, the risk of myocarditis from COVID-19 is way, way higher than the risk with um, children getting COVID-19. In any of the clinical trials, did anybody die of myocarditis or was it just they, a few of them got it? Um, so in the, in the early clinical trials, I don't recall that there were any deaths from it. There were some people who got it. Okay. And with enough people getting it, eventually there will be some deaths. Okay. Um, that's, so, that's really interesting. I, I really appreciate you walking us through the risk balancing approach to vaccination. Because I, I find myself tempted, and the language probably is also tempting, to consider all of this in a very binary way. Like you mm -hmm. think about FDA approval is either approved or not approved. And it's a little bit difficult to map that um, onto a kind of risk balancing approach where it's more like, you know, a, a balancing of the probabilistic outcomes of, a, a, of each choice. But I, I think that's really interesting way to, to frame it, partially because it makes it so clear that that is like a key job of the FDA and the CDC is to balance those risks, assess them relative to one another and make a recommendation to the public. And that's what these expert panels did. You know, when, once it's all distilled down into the headline, it sounds like it's a binary thing. But when you actually look at the transcripts of the discussions among the experts when they're going through and doing their voting, it's not binary at all. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a complicated thing. And, um, and one, of the, one of the difficult things when you're trying to balance risks is when um, the, some of those risks are partially unknown. Yeah. Um, but the only way you can get hard numbers on those is to have larger numbers of people vaccinated. Yeah. Um, that's, that's when you, you know, the, the total number of children in the trials was fairly small. And that leaves some uncertainty as to exactly how high these risks are going to be. It's not going to be until the vaccinations actually occur that you'll be able to narrow down and say exactly how much higher the risk from COVID is than the risk from the vaccine. It's clear that it's higher and it's enough higher for the CDC to feel very comfortable in recommending the vaccine. But there's still too much uncertainty for, for a requirement. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think it makes sense for us to try to be um, understanding of parents who are afraid. Hmm. Um, and I really think that, so one of the things that I like about the approach for children is that they're kind of pushing for children to be getting these vaccines from their pediatrician's offices. Now you, you can get it from the, from the pharmacy, but I think it makes sense for pediatricians to have good long conversations with parents about what exactly the parents are afraid of yeah. and give them information to uh, that's specifically about what that person's fears are. Yeah. A lot of the fears are based on, you know, bullshit. There's, there's so much bullshit going around. It's, (laughs) and, and I worry that the bullshit makes people think that there is nothing to worry about and worrying about it is just a stupid thing. Worrying about it isn't a stupid thing. People Mm. should worry about it. They should think carefully about it uh, and they should balance those risks. Um, But you you really need to get good information, good sources about those risks, not just leave whatever you saw on YouTube. Yeah. So I guess one, I think that's such an, like a such an important point for people that are you know getting the vaccine and trying to advocate for other people to get it like like we do and you know people that might be hesitant is that not all qualms or worries are created equal like yeah some of them it it by yeah by the nature of the scientific process some of them are more valid than others yeah and if you just dismiss everybody's concerns Mm -hmm. equally as if they're all bullshit yeah then you lose credibility yourself yeah it makes us callous to legitimate risks and worries and to your point raymond i think i think the pfizer vaccine trial for kids was like four thousand five hundred for wave for phases one two and three in the first week nine hundred thousand five to 11 year olds received the vaccine. So to your point about data collection, like yeah. we're going to be in a, a much better place in a couple of months than we were. Exactly. And so, you know, a, it isn't such an unreasonable thing for a parent to decide um, the risk of waiting one more month isn't that great. And in one more month, there's going to be so much more data and, you know, maybe that really is okay for some people to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But boy, I sure am glad a lot of people are jumping right in and getting it done because you know, that that's going to lead to the data that's going to help us know. Exactly. Yeah. That makes total sense. And like, I think, I think that's a really important point about these conversations in general is to have them focused on asking the right questions and putting pressure on trying to get to good answers to your point it's 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 not even even like framing up the relative risks as the risk of the vaccine versus the risk of ever getting covid yeah is to your your point just now not as nuanced as the decision actually reflects it's it's the risk of getting covid in the next month yeah uh, or the next two months until you're prepared to to make a decision so let let me 
give a little other advice for parents who are thinking about this. Um, and this is just some, some general things about the child vaccine. The, um, the dosage for children is much lower than the adult dosage. Um, and that, that can be misleading. It can cause people to kind of assume that it's that it has something to do with weight because a lot of drugs are, are dosed based on weight. But that is not what this is about. And so, for example, there are people who will look at, okay, the five to 11 dosage is much lower than the 12 to all the way up dosage. But my, uh, my 11 year old is really big for their age. Should I mm. get them the adult dose? And the answer is no, you should not get them the adult dose mm. because it's not about weight. The difference has to do with the maturity of the immune system. Mm. And it reacts differently at different ages. And this is, this is the reason why you have to really separate the research in the first place into these different age groups, there are key milestones in the development of the immune system and how it reacts to things. And it really has to be assessed separately. That's also why you can't just say, okay, it's, it's approved for five-year-olds and up, but I've got a four-year-old, he's big for his age, shouldn't it be okay? Well, mm. no, it's not. Because yeah. no matter how big he is for his age, he doesn't have a five-year-old immune system. He has a four-year-old immune system. And, yeah. and that's different. Um, looking at infant um, vaccination is something we also need to do. But it's not there yet. Yeah. And uh, until the data is there, it's, it's a roll of the dice to do it. Yeah. Um, with older people, we have enough data. It's no longer a roll of the dice. It, it is, it definitely makes sense. It wouldn't have been approved otherwise, but with the infants, just not enough known yet. Yeah. So I guess to sort of sum things up, um, if you are in a situation, I, I would say if you are in a situation in which your children have a higher risk of being exposed to COVID, then it probably does make sense to not wait that extra month, right? So this, this is why I think people should have a discussion with their pediatrician. Um, different kids are going to be at different amounts of risk based on their, their life, their exposure, um, where they live. Um, you know, if you live in a place where there is very high vaccination rate, you're not in as much of a risk and waiting a month may not be so bad. But if yeah. you are in a state where the vaccination rate is really low, um, that's a reason to not wait. Yeah. Um, if you are exposed to a lot of people who are not vaccinated, that's a reason to not wait. Um, yeah. There's, and, and then of course there are um, a, a lot of um, 
diseases that people might have that might affect their immune system. There are a few cases where people can't get vaccinated because of immune suppressions of various sorts, but most of the time, immune suppressions make it even more important to get vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, those are very individual things. And it really makes sense to talk those out with pediatricians individually, not just get a blanket recommendation, but for my kid with this condition right now, in the state where I live with the vaccination rate and with Uncle Henry coming over totally yeah. oblivious to the risks and coming over and exposing everyone on a regular basis, yeah. what should I do? Mike. Yeah. Uh, I do really appreciate this, uh, dad, because I, I know that I often do have a tendency to think of things in a very binary way. And it's very tempting when it comes to vaccines, because they're, like you said, there's so much bullshit out there. And ultimately the conclusion is still is that if you have a child the risk of them getting COVID is still higher than the risk of them uh, getting vaccinated. As far as we know. As far as we know at this point. Uh, however. Well, okay. So I would say right now, we definitely know that the risk of COVID is higher than the okay. risk of vaccination. Okay. What we don't know is how much higher. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's probably like for myocarditis, the, the risk of myocarditis from COVID is probably at least 10 times higher from COVID than from the, the vaccination. But wow. it might be a thousand times higher. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to tell. And that's even just a, a clean case where it, it's a potential side effect of both. And that makes it really uh, right. <laughs> effective right. to compare the two. Yeah. But it seems like, it seems like a huge takeaway from me is like, well, well, two things really. One, is something that I think a lot of people have learned throughout the pandemic in thinking about making decisions in this environment, which is that it's really hard to assess these risks in comparison. Like it's, it's, it's a difficult, like without being a statistician, it's a bit of a difficult thing to do. And so that leads me to conclusion two, which is consult and defer to experts, you know, gather yeah. the information, yeah. talk to someone who can, can, can put all of these factors on a rubric that they're able to assess like a pediatrician in this case and get their, um, their recommendation, um, which seems like a really, you know, clear path forward, uh, for all the parents I know. Um, and to Nathan's point, like just one last thought there is like, I think it is so easy in the public messaging is to, is to get pulled in to thinking that the public public messaging battle is like all there is to the yeah. conclusion. Like, you know, we need to distill this down into a one sentence thing that people can digest so they'll go and do the right thing on, you know, on average. Um, but like, that's why we have you on Raymond, like yeah. <laughs> to get a more nuanced perspective on these things. So I was, I was just looking up something that I had heard recently and um, I, it, it's a quote from Benjamin Franklin talking about his decision about vaccinating his son for smallpox. Hmm. And um, I'd, I'd like to just read that quote. 
um, to give a little bit of context. This, this question that parents are facing is not a new one. Mm. Uh, in his autobiography, um, he said, in 1736, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of parents who omit that operation on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing that the regret may be the same either way and that therefore the safer should be chosen. Hmm. I like that. Um, we have been talking to retired professor of anatomy and physiology, Raymond Silov. Uh, Dad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. And with that, we'll end our show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that actually today, the day that we're recording this, November 11th, is the anniversary of Skyrim. Really? And they released wow. the Skyrim anniversary edition, which I believe puts the number of times that they've re-released Skyrim up to... Uh, 27,182. <laughs> but still brightens your day every time. <laughs> it still brightens my day. Well, there's new content. There's there's mm. like there's Creation Club content that's all just bundled up. It's new quests, new equipment, like actual gameplay uh modifications. Mm. And you know, Skyrim's my favorite game. And honestly, uh, the way I see it, I don't mind spending a little bit of extra money for the anniversary edition. I mm. bought the game in 2011 for $60. And between special edition and the original edition, I have over 4,000 hours in Skyrim. Wow. So the way I see it, I've gotten my money's worth. I'm okay with giving them a few extra bucks. That's crazy. Well, that's, <laughs> that makes sense. Wow. What about you, Michael? What's your highlight? Um, I think my highlight was actually, yeah, today was Veterans Day, which means that my office had the day off, which was nice, and um, I got to spend the hanging out with Bree, and we got to ride our motorcycles a bunch, uh, and so that was really fun. It was a beautiful day outside, perfect day to ride, so it was awesome. Nice. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>